Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. The fallout from the weekend Croke Park pitch brawl, as calls grow for stern action from the GAA, we ask, is there a discipline problem in Gaelic games? Well, I think it was a shocking scene. Uh, it was a great game of football um, and uh, awful uh, that it was marred by what transpired um, at the end of the game. The brain drain at health continues. HSE Chief Paul Reid is to step down in December. Another high-profile departure from the health service. Mr Reid's role in handling the pandemic is praised. Ireland has been shown to have one of the lowest excess mortality figures anywhere in the world during COVID. I believe a lot of the credit for that goes to our incredible healthcare workers. And at the helm through that whole period has been Paul Reid. And a Russian missile strike on a packed shopping centre in Ukraine as G7 leaders meet. Do get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV. There are fears of mass casualties in Ukraine after a Russian missile strike on a shopping centre in the centre of the country with at least 13 deaths reported so far. The country's president, Vladimir Zelensky, has said the number of victims is impossible to imagine after reports there were at least a 1,000 civilians inside the complex in Kremenchuk, a city in central Ukraine. Observers have said it's not strategically important and is nowhere near any front lines. The attack came as powerful G7 leaders met in Germany to consider the war and the Western response to it. The NATO military alliance is increasing its forces on high alert on its eastern flank to 300,000. Well, here at home, the GEA is set to investigate the brawl that took place at the end of normal time in yesterday's All-Ireland quarterfinal between Galway and Armagh. Galway forward Damien Comer suffered an apparent eye gouge during the incident. A spokesperson for the GEA has told Virgin Media Sport that the referee's report is due with the Central Competitions Control Committee, likely to meet tomorrow to discuss the brawl. The Taoiseach has had this to say on what happened. Well, I think it was a shocking scene. Uh, it was a great game of football um, and uh, awful uh, that it was marred by what transpired um, at the end of the game. And I think the Gaelic Association obviously will deal with that and will have to deal with that uh, through its procedures and processes. But there is no room for that in any sport. And particularly when young people are watching their heroes on the football or hurling or soccer fields, uh, they don't need to see this. Uh, type of behaviour um, and um, it was quite quite disturbing to see uh, and quite concerning. 
Well, to discuss this, I'm joined by Government Chief Whip and Minister of State for Sport, Jack Chambers, Media House Head of News, Kevin Doyle, and former GEA President, Liam O'Neill. And I'm also joined via Skype this evening by Neve Campbell, who's a journalist with the Belfast Telegraph, and by former Monaghan player and newspaper columnist, Dick Clerken. You are all very welcome uh, to the programme. Kevin, look, everybody who is involved in the GEA, who is a fan of uh, the GEA, has come out and has condemned this. There were pretty unsavoury scenes, it has to be said. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't see how anybody can defend what happened yesterday. But the strange irony in all of that is nobody's shocked and no, everyone says, yeah, it can't happen again. But the truth is, who sat at home on Sunday and watched what was probably the match of the year, uh, which I think is probably part of the reason this is getting all the attention, and whose heart didn't jump a bit when the row started. The crowd in Crow Park, the noise level goes up. So we accept it. We almost expect it and people enjoyed it. So it's completely wrong, but there is this imbalance whereby um, we decided that it was okay. If, if you look at the pictures in all the papers today, or you played the video there, like there are two guards standing there watching it, kind of oblivious to what is happening in front of them. It's in front of 80,000 people, I don't know, three, four, half a million people maybe watching on television, if not more. And it's, it just happens and it's accepted. Could it happen anywhere else in the country? It's like there's diplomatic immunity on the pitch in Crow Park. It couldn't so what, happen anywhere else. What we're actually disgusted about is the extent of this particular brawl and the fact that a player, it appears, uh, was uh, eye-gouged. Not the fact that there was a brawl at all, because it's not a one-off. We sit here, I think, every year, don't we, and talk about similar scenes within GA football. Yeah, I, I think we're disgusted because we know we should be, but we don't necessarily want to do anything about it. Or, or you know, everybody will give out. And there will be most likely a suspension for the player that did the eye gouging. Who knows if others involved in, in the brawl will get something. I mean, the, 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 the argument is it was handbags. And you'll hear this kind of language, this kind of clean washing of it, of handbags and uh, a bit of pushing and shoving. And sure, this is what goes on up and down the country and the passion and the, you know, and they were all just going down the tunnel and that shouldn't happen. Like you can't blame them all going down the tunnel for it. So I think it's just one of those things that we expect from JA games and we all enjoy it but we know it's wrong. So then, faux outrage, is it, Liam? It's interesting to hear the comments uh, made by Kevin there. Um, and it's doubly embarrassing to sit beside him and listen to him say that. They expect it. We shouldn't expect it. Our players are amateurs. They're well brought up. They're trained by their clubs, looked after well. There was absolutely no need whatsoever for what happened yesterday. It's uh, there is no ex acceptable level of violence. I think that message, I've been saying that message for 10 years. I think we really have to start living it now. It's embarrassing. It was a wonderful game of football. Credit to the teams, credit to all the training they did, to their families, to the people who went along to watch a spectacle yesterday and to have us tonight and have the Taoiseach today talking about it. It's embarrassing. It has to stop. And it's up to us now as an organisation to face up to our responsibilities and say, yes, we must do something about this right, right now. What happens usually... Because it's an ongoing problem and not just at this sort of elite level in Croke Park. No, it can unfortunately, it can happen anywhere. Uh, but you know, I've always said the sporting organisations, you can't legislate for what's going to happen, but you have to take account of what does happen. And I think it's up to us now to face our responsibilities and say there is no acceptable level of this sort of behaviour. We have to stop it and we have to start doing it now. Uh, Jack, your reaction? 
Well, I think it was, it was absolutely shocking and appalling. I think it marred uh, what was a fantastic game of football. And uh, like GA players are role models. Uh, they're people that many of our uh, younger generation look up to, whether watching the game or being at the game. Uh, and I think that's why now that there needs to be a full and effective disciplinary action uh, taken so that uh, we stamp out any violence in our game. And it's important that uh, you know the positivity that was brought from the actual match itself should be what we're reflecting this evening, uh, not a shocking scene. Um, you know, violence on our pitches is something that has to be stamped out, uh, and that's why there needs to be effective disciplinary action. But also disciplinary action where uh, you know where 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 there's a clear deterrent, uh, and that players, when the, when they're faced with that choice, won't engage in such action. And players themselves need to take proper responsibility as leaders and as role models on the pitch. I think we've seen. I think a lot of positive comments from players even today for, and former players who want to see this stamped out of our game. I think the GA more generally, if you think of what it represents across many communities, it's about inclusion, uh, participation uh, and community. And that's what I think happens right across the length and breadth of the country with thousands of young people participating. But then seeing those scenes sends the wrong signal and that's why there has to be a full action taken by the GA. So they take the responsibility and ensure that scenes like that. But I think just to be fair, the reaction, I think, of the public shows what the public think of such behaviour. Uh, and I, I, on this I, occasion, I, until no, no, I, I think, no, I think there has been. I think, I think there has been. I wouldn't say. I think there has been a, a strong reaction that people don't want to see. I think people were shocked to see eye gouging happening um, after what was a. We saw the the Re Re and O'Neill point, and then this uh, the shocking incident happened after it. And I think we. The public reaction has been has been such that people want to see action. They want to see disciplinary focus from the GA now, and it's up to the central council to follow through on that. Uh, because Dick, we don't see this in other sports, do we? I mean, we don't see it often in a game of football or in a game of rugby or any other team sport. Why just the GA? Talking about eye gouging or, or, or stamping or dangerous head uh, collisions, Kira. I'm, I'm oh, not yeah. too sure that we don't the, see these instances these... in other games. So I'm not in. I'm not getting into what about here. You know, it was a very unsightly incident that happened at the weekend. I would take exception to the idea that people enjoyed it. I sat watching it with my kids. It was in Centre Parks for the weekend. Thrilling game. I was disgusted watching it. I was very uncomfortable watching it, and I would say that was the, the general sense of the GA population watching it. You know, I've played for 20 years. I've seen how the game has changed from when I started playing to what it is now. Yes, this was box office. This was prime time. And that's why we're discussing about it here tonight. But as someone who's involved in coaching and going to games every weekend, there's hundreds, thousands of games played at all levels every weekend in the GA. Because you're talking about the GA as an organization has a disciplinary problem. Okay, we had a very, very poor incident at the weekend but that is the exception the gross exception not the norm so deal with the incident and it was wrong on so many so levels you don't, but dick just to be clear you you disagree that there is a wider issue with violence uh, and this kind of behavior in ga matches yeah violence to use the word violence kira as as, as uh, the, the, the ga has an issue with violence in its sport absolutely do situations like this happen? They do. And they do happen in every sport. They mightn't get discussed on primetime news talk shows on a Monday night, but 
the GA, as the country's largest and most popular organisation, has to be held to a higher standard. And that's why we're talking with the GA tonight. We don't talk about what happens in other codes in this country because they're not discussed at a higher level. And that's that's a good thing for the GA. So we have to take what's coming to us and deal with the incident. But again, to, to use the words violence and that GA people and onlookers enjoyed. Well, I, 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 I'd be disappointed for anybody that enjoyed watching what happened right. at the weekend. That's everyone up to their preference. I certainly didn't. And I doubt very many people did. Kevin. I think, first of all, it doesn't happen in soccer and rugby in the same way that it does in GA. And Dick's wrong, right, sorry. This doesn't happen every weekend, but it does happen every season. Uh, and I think it will, and it happens a lot. This obviously was on television. There was huge audience. It happens up and down the country. I think it is different in this scenario. In rugby and soccer, you just don't see the same level of this sort of thing. And what I mean by people enjoying it, all you do, play back, listen to the sound of the crowd on the television and the voice is rised, uh, rising as soon as that started. And I think a lot of people, right, Dick's right, if he's sitting there watching with his kids, obviously it's uncomfortable and that's not what you want your kids to do. But I can tell you there was an awful lot of people who were sitting up and down the country watching that match yesterday and they sat up in their chair when the fight started and, and the pulse started racing. Uh, Minister, do you think... Doesn't mean they enjoyed it, Kevin. Um, do you think there is sort of a macho culture within the GAA? that maybe tolerates or encourages, as Kevin says, I know, Dick, you disagree, um, but that tolerates or encourages this at times. Well, I would say just the, the reaction of, uh, of people that were watching the match, I think, was of disgust. I think that's what we're... Uh, if you look at the reaction online and people I've spoken to today, um, it's a widespread disgust of what happened. I don't think uh, people in any way enjoyed it, and I think we need to be clear about that. Uh, I, look, what I see in the GA is in, in, in actually a number of GA clubs today in Roscommon and, uh, and saw kids in my own community going out playing mini-leagues. Like the GA, what it represents within communities is about volunteerism, uh, participation, community, and as Dick said, there are thousands of matches that happen uh, that are all about participation where there, you know, there's handshakes after and there isn't uh, you know, what we saw at the weekend. But I think, uh, as Dick said, we, we need to hold, it's our national game, there needs to be a high standard. Players are role models and where violence occurs, we need to speak about it yeah. and we need to stamp it out. And, and there has to be proper follow through and disciplinary action okay, on, those who, on those who, who, who have any act of violence in the GA because it sends the wrong signal to people who are yeah. playing and participating. I suppose on the flip side of that, when I talk about soccer and rugby, you have to remember that all the fans from the four counties who were in Crow Park yesterday are all mixed in one, one, among one another. They're everywhere. And that is the essence of the GA, that there isn't big fights in the fans or anything like that tension you see often in, in soccer games, Premier League, international soccer game, where fans are put in their boxes effectively and kept away from, from other fans. But then you see that on the pitch. So I think that's where the imbalance is. So you're right, the GA is everything that's great and it's people mixing and we're all on the, on the same road and want the same thing, which is a good match. But I think... I think that's where, that's where disciplinary action, I think, uh, yeah. you know, and we have I'm had just, it. I'm just being interested, sorry yeah. to cut across you, Minister, because I'd just be interested to hear, Liam, your um, opinion on this, because I was reading a piece in the Irish Times, I think it was Kevin McStay, uh, the former player, had written, I think it was last year, and basically what he said is, you know, the glorification of the hard man in the GAA is a bit of a problem. Would you agree? It's a problem if it happens. It doesn't always happen. I mean, the disciplinary system, and I, I spoke on this a good bit when I was uh, out on, it's there to protect the decent, ordinary, skillful player. Now, sometimes people speak of discipline to say it's, it's being hard on players. It's not. It's to protect the good, skillful player who has trained hard and wants to show his or her skill. And that's what we're about. We want them to do that. We want to protect, to protect the player. And we need to improve our behaviour. I think players have to take responsibility. 
it's now quite common when people come, uh, come onto a field to jostle your opponent immediately and start a confrontation with him. I remember a time when people come onto the field and shook hands with their opponent. And sometimes when they were substituted, they turned around and shook hands. I don't know where we lost that, whether it's in society or in our organisation. I, I think it's more so in society. But, but is there a problem I've... then that when that happens, um, you know, a, a player substituted on, he comes over and, you know, gives the shoulder, gives the elbow, whatever, into the back, the dig. We all see it. We possibly don't uh, bat an eyelid at it anymore. That, that should be pulled up on. That needs well, to be stopped. And is that the referee's job? Oh, absolutely. There, there's, uh, as I said at the start of this, there's no acceptable level of violence or, or misbehaviour. Anybody comes onto a field and just as somebody said, should get a yellow card straight away. Absolutely. Discipline needs to be applied on the spot. There's no need for investigations after when that happens because the player knows when he sees the yellow card, he's in trouble. Dick, your response. I'm very uncomfortable with the word violence been thrown about here in terms of giving the dig. Like, and, and this is where things that the conversation sort of loses the run of itself. Um, I, we're here talking about because there was a, a row, a brawl, a fight at the end of normal time yesterday. That's what happened. And now we're talking about violence at large in the GEA. Like, well, we're, I think we're talking about We're talking about a culture. Yeah, okay, we're talking about, I suppose, behaviours on the pitch that perhaps so, lead to those I'll types of roles. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you about culture. Okay, I'll tell you about culture, and, and Kevin talked about it. We have a culture in the GA that despite all the alleged violence that we have, fans can go and mix in the most tense, hostile, potentially atmospheres and shake hands walking out the gate. That's culture. We have our players that despite all the alleged violence that we have in the games, will just swap jerseys, shake hands and share a pint. After. That's culture. That's what happens. That's the reality. That's the game I've played. That's the game that's been played today. And that, despite the incident that happened, after the game, that's what happened after the game. All those players, I can guarantee you, shook hands and walked off knowing what happened. And they equally know what happened after normal time was wrong. All right. And um, they will have to accept that. And they will deal with it. And the disciplinary hand will come down hard on them. And that will be a difficult few weeks for the individuals and teams involved. Uh, okay, But I do have a serious issue with the word violence been smeared over the GA because of one isolated incident, because it is the gross exception not the norm that people are trying to portray at the minute. Oh, Neve Campbell, would you agree with the points that um, Dick is making there? It's an absolute isolated incident. It is not the norm. Uh, there is no violence issue within the GAA. I don't think it's an isolated incident. I mean, in terms of with Armagh alone, um, not trying to get at Armagh, but they were also involved with Malise, um in the league with Tyrone. It saw four Tyrone players get sent off and one Armagh player. They were involved in a brawl, um, a violent enough brawl with Donegal a month later. They got four sentences off and then they appealed those red cards and they were able to get those um, sentences off overturned for their next match. So I think there's an issue issue with matchism. I do agree with Dick in terms of the culture. It's brilliant, you know, when someone was joking today that those lads, if they went to play Aussie rules, international rules tomorrow, they would be the best of friends. And there was a really lovely scene at the end um, that was captured. Ethan Rafferty, the Armago, he was on the ground, very disheartened after the loss. The goal keeper went over and pulled him up, but you know, and they had a nice, a nice chat. So that, that is the way the game goes. And I don't believe any player goes into a match thinking, I'm going to get into a fight. I'm going to violently attack someone at half time or at full time here. But I think at the end of the day, they are amateur players. They're not primarily footballers. They go to, they go to school, university, work on a Monday morning, back into the public realm. You know, they're professional and elite and everything but name. And I think whenever you're at that level, I'll never understand the mindset of um, an inter-county male player, you do need that level of testosterone 
and that level of ego and self-belief and confidence. And I think, you know, when they do go in and they don't take their, they don't come off the back foot, the opposition doesn't come off the back foot. There's so no there, so there is, They're both, you know, Steve, you're saying there is a level of, you know, this macho culture within the GA. There, there, because there you don't see this in the female because, game, in fairness. You don't see it. You definitely don't, like, they're few and far between in the female game. Now, in terms of coming on, you know, I sort of disagree with what Liam was saying. You know, if, if people jostle each other at all, they should be given the yellow card. Every player on the pitch should be sent off because there is that in the female game too. And there is that in rugby and soccer too. You know, you go on, you get a shoulder to begin with. It's not violent. It's whenever it boils over. And in this instance and in previous malaise that we've seen this season alone, that's what's happened as well. But the reason that that's happening is because, yes, the onus needs to be in the player, but there's a wider problem with the GAA and the rules aren't fit for a purpose, you know. If they're going in and they're getting sent off and they're thinking, I'll just overturn that appeal, and more often than not, it does get overturned. There needs to be a precedent set. Um, just want to go back to our studio guests here, uh, listening to uh, what Neve had to say there. Do you have, as was faith, uh, Minister, in the GAA's disciplinary systems, in the processes that they have? Well, I think the, the incident here will be a strong measure of that. Uh, and I think, um, you know, there are volunteers involved in the Central Council. Uh, I don't want to undermine the genuine people that are there. We'll see what the outcome is of this. But, uh, but they've had to deal with other uh, instances. Uh, Neve mentioned, you know, uh, our map players getting red cards, appealing it after the match and it getting overturned. But I think I think overturning, uh, overturning, uh, uh, you know, did, uh, disciplinary sanctions certainly sends the wrong signal, um, and I think they need to they need to examine that. But I would say in the general context, uh, I think the reaction to this. Uh, and the, the necessity to respond to violence uh, and, and ensure that it's stamped out. They need to have the appropriate structures in place uh, to deal with that. But the structures are, are individuals who oversee it. I, I think the overturning of certain sanctions and the, you know, there is a, there does appear to be a, a trend around certain uh, certain sanctions being overturned. And I know Liam would know more about that than I would, but I think, uh, it's, I think that, that undermines the message that the original sanction sends. Liam? And just it's interesting to hear the comments about it being acceptable that they're amateurs. You know, a punch from an amateur hurts every bit as much as a punch from a professional. We have to, if we're going to stop this, we have to set aside the excuses. A punch is a punch. It hurts. A belt you're not expecting does awful damage. And I think we have to iron out that and say, look, we're not accepting this anymore. Uh, players have to take responsibility and we have to deal with the incidents. I wouldn't like anybody condemning the people. It's the incidents are... Rough play is fine. Um, jostling somebody when you go on, go on the field to ride them up is not acceptable in any sport. Are the penalties uh, acting as a deterrent? Probably not. Honestly. I mean, we wouldn't have this. If the deterrent is strong enough, people won't do it. And I think people have to sort of uh, accept punishment is punishment. And we had a famous incident a number of years ago from one of our greatest hurlers, John Milan, said... I did the crime, I'll do the time, or roughly something to that effect. I really admired that. I thought he was great, he was brave, he took responsibility for his actions. And I think we need to inculcate a culture in children where they will take responsibility. And as you rightly said, you saw uh, games today, summer camps started all over the country today. Oh yeah, there's um, so many yeah, brilliant so many brilliant. to the GAA yeah, that we all adore. Let's not make excuses for those who are dragging us down. Um, what's going to happen now with your action, Kevin? What's the next steps here? Well, without the being too cliche about it, the ball is in the GAA's court. So um, obviously the, the CCC will meet tomorrow. Um, they'll review, I imagine, an awful lot of video footage to try and pick out um, 
obviously the eye gouging incident itself, but then what happened around that, how it led to it, who joined in. And they really have a big call to make on, I mean, it's pretty obvious there will be a sanction for the eye gouger, yeah. um, but how many people on either side of that? For Armagh, even though people seem to be putting a lot of the blame on them, well, they're out. So I think it'll be Galway who'll be watching very closely to see if they lose some players for an All-Ireland semi-final. All right, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to Liam O'Neill, to Neve Campbell and to uh, Dick Clerken who both joined us on Skype this evening. Jack and... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Kevin are staying uh, here with me in studio. Next, the latest high-profile departure from the troubled health service. Stay with us. You're very welcome back. Well, the health service has been rocked by another high-profile resignation of a senior figure with the HSE boss, Paul Reid, the latest, to announce his decision to step down. He joins Professor Tony Houlihan, Dr Ronan Glynn and Anne O'Connor, who've all signalled their departures from key positions in both the Department of Health and the Health Service Executive. Mr Reid will leave his post as HSE CEO at the end of the year, saying he now wants to spend some time with his family. But the news has led to fresh warnings of a so-called brain drain at the top tier of the health service. Well, my panel is still here with me in studio, Government Chief Whip, Jack Chambers, and Media House Group Head of News, Kevin Doyle. And I'm also joined online by Independent TD, Dennis Norton. Uh, you're very welcome to the programme, uh, Dennis. Uh, Kevin, the exodus continues. And this one, I do think, caught people by surprise. There was no, no rumours uh, that, that this um, resignation was impending. No, I mean, Paul Reid had two years left to run in his five-year contract. Um, people were relatively happy. The politicians were happy with his performance throughout COVID. Um, they're obviously, you know, the hurricane, well, we hope, is over, but there's quite a mess to clean up in the health service after COVID. But when Tony Holohan was stepping aside, there were rumours circulating. Ronan Glynn's decision to leave for a job in the private sector was well known or certainly talked about 
uh, around Leinster House and government buildings before it was announced. This one seemed to come totally out of the blue, unless Jack can tell us that there was some inside track. But I think this did catch everybody by surprise because um, he hadn't really given any hint of it and he's only halfway through his contract. And we have to take his reasons for leaving at face value. Yeah, he said he wants to spend more time with his family. Anyone who, who follows Paul Reid on, on social media will know that he's constantly um, tweeting about uh, missing his, his granddaughter in Texas uh, and how he had trips planned that he couldn't go to during COVID. Um, so you have to take that at face value. At the same time, you kind of look and you go, if you were going to leave and if you were thinking about the stress, in fairness, I know people will go, he was paid €400,000 and that was his job and the health service is a mess, but it is a stressful job. And... So you have to look and say he's got through COVID. What he set out to do in 2019, very, very little of it has been achieved. In fact, waiting lists have gone up quite substantially. We can blame COVID for all of that. So in terms of the road that he had to travel in his role as chief executive of the HSE, actually, rather than making progress from where he started in 2019, the road is now longer and further in terms of the reforms that were needed. So perhaps he looked at it as well and went, I have a clean reputation. Very few people get out of health at the highest point of the health in this country um, with people still having good things to say about them and to leave on their own terms. So perhaps he thought, it's been a hell of a two years, I'm out. Uh, Jack Chambers, why so many resignations, do you think? Well, I just want to, in the first instance, pay tribute to Paul Reid, an excellent public servant who I think gave fantastic uh, public service during a really difficult um, three years uh, from his tenure with the cyber attack. Um, the uh, obviously the managing COVID. I was a councillor on Fingal County Council when he was chief executive there, um, and he's really someone who's dedicated and committed to public service. And I know he now wants to spend some time with his family. But I would say, just to to his credit, he led one of the world's best vaccination programs, which I think is still uh, standing us strong as we have another rising case numbers. He's someone who, uh, I said with a second, one of the lowest mortality rates in terms of excess deaths when it comes to COVID. Uh, and someone who is committed to healthcare reform and I think led um, the health service in a really positive and committed way during his tenure. Um, so I, I you know, commend his service. Um, but as a government, we're committed to you know, continuing the reforms. Obviously, it's been difficult with COVID. It's been the priority for us is to manage that and protect people and also invest in, our, in the acute side of our health system as we're getting through uh, the the ongoing pandemic, okay. but he, but he's someone... But do you have any who... understanding why so many high-profile figures are now leaving? Well, each of them have given their individual reasons and people have taken different uh, career options, as Kevin has mentioned. Uh, and Paul has decided to step aside to spend more time with his family. Uh, and it's been a really difficult two years in our health system uh, and through COVID and, and uh, people have made different decisions and uh, I respect you know, their, their right to, to go and, and make different career choices. Um, because, Kevin, there will have been speculation in the last 24 hours that what was happening, you know, at Navin Hospital, um, and he did give a pretty forthright interview yesterday on um, uh, this week, um, Paul Reid, where he said, basically, we are pushing ahead with the closure of Navin A&E. We've heard the concerns raised by the minister and other ministers, uh, but we are pushing ahead. And then there was a second, I think, slapdown, wasn't there, from the minister um, of health, Stephen Donnelly, about whether or not this closure could go ahead. He basically put it up to Stephen Donnelly and said, if you don't want this to happen, you sign the formal uh, Section 10 or, uh, and formally put it that it's on your head, not mine, if you decide not to do this, to go against the experts in Navin Hospital. I think what you're probably seeing there, some people jumped to the conclusion today that somehow 
in the 24 hours since that happened that he got a tap on the shoulder or he was felt. It's more likely that he knew at lunchtime, he obviously did know at lunchtime on, on Sunday that he was out. So perhaps he felt unburdened with the politics of his role at that point and decided that this is what he believes is the right thing to do. I think that's far more likely than that being a catalyst for him leaving. I think the fact that he knew he was leaving was likely to be the catalyst for his comments on Navin Hospital. Yeah. But isn't it fair to say, uh, Jack Chambers, that Paul Reid, as head of the HSE, trying to make this difficult decision to close Navin Hospital, which has la largely been supported by, you know, clinicians and medical staff at Navin Hospital, that that is being undermined repeatedly by ministers in your government. And it does make the job that he was trying to do more difficult. Well, I, I think we, we shouldn't start attaching um, the Navin Hospital matter with his decision to... No, but just aside, the, uh, to aside be fair, from we his have resignation, to... even if he was still in the job today and saying he's going to be in the job for the next two years, surely the decision that he's trying to make, trying to push through the closure of Navin Hospital, that that difficult decision is being undermined by the health minister and, in fact, by the justice minister in your government. Well, to just say that, obviously, the Minister for Health and the government have a, have a clear role when it comes to matters around health policy and reconfiguration. Uh, we, we work uh, with, with the HSE, the department and the government uh, in shaping health policy and decisions around configuration, uh, and the minister has, has outlined the position on that. Um, but I think it's important not to associate the decision of Paul Reid uh, around that matter because uh, obviously he's given the HSE's yeah. perspective on it um, but he's also given his, his clear reason about why he's stepping down as well. Um, Dennis Norton, uh, do you think there is a difficulty here for any head of the HSE to do their job when they're trying to deal you know, with the Department of Health and with ministers who perhaps have a vested interest in decisions made in the health service? But first of all, can I say that I want to echo the comments that were made by uh, Jack in relation to, to Paul Reid. Uh, look, I met Pat, uh, Paul Reid on many occasions in Leinster House uh, and had many dealings with him uh, as the chief executive of the HSE. And I think he did an exemplary job in, in a role that was a very difficult role during the period uh, that he was uh, in office. But coming to the, the question that you, you've asked me, I think the, the questions that are being asked by, by ministers at the moment in relation to Navin Hospital are very legitimate questions. Uh, they're only replicating the issues that have already happened in other parts of the country. All you have to do is look at the HICPA report uh, in the last few days in relation to Limerick Hospital, where the emergency department is only able to cater for half of the number of patients that are coming through the doors at the moment, and that's on foot of the closure okay, of Nina we, we know, obviously, you resigned uh, yourself. You lost the whip over the closure of Roscommon A&E. So I know uh, local A&Es, you know, is, a, is an issue for you, Dennis. No, no. The point I'm trying to make here is that there were commitments given uh, at the time that the supports would be put in place in the larger hospitals to cater for the patients that were being referred. And that hasn't happened. Just taking relation to my own local area, Fort Yonkala Hospital, got no additional resources in relation to the emergency department there, which is okay. chaotic tonight and every other night, and actually has 17 less beds available today than it had when Roscommon was actually operational. All right, Dennis, obviously the next person who's going to come in to this role, you know, one of their jobs is going to be to try and implement Slantia Care to deal with those waiting lists that Kevin pointed out have just got longer and more uh, difficult to perhaps tackle than when Paul Reid joined a couple of years ago, will they have the political support in government to do that? 
they will, I think, have the political support that's there. But I think the key thing is whether they're going to have the support within the health service, because the reality is that down through the years, various politicians uh, have tried to reform uh, the health service in this country and, and it failed because the clinicians didn't come on board with them in relation to something that was agreed. And I think what's unique about Solange Care uh, is that this, for the first time, uh, is all of the political parties coming together, signing up to a clear strategy for 10 years in relation to our health service. Uh, so the policy is set. It's now up to the clinicians and the management, both within the Department of Health and the HSE, to actually implement that. And, you know, there's a lot of vested interests within our health service that does not want to see this work, doesn't want to see the power being taken away from the hospitals and the investment okay, going into services, Jack, which reduces the demand on health overall. Well, Minister Donnelly is pursuing the implementation of Slauncha Care and, for example, we're seeing the uh, regional health areas and progress on that. We've also seen, for example, a new innovation in early 2021 on GP diagnostics and trying to strengthen our whole community healthcare system is a key priority for government so that we reduce the inpatient load in our hospital system. And we've seen huge amounts of, say, radiology intervention there when it comes to community We've healthcare. seen progress, but I think most people who would be involved in slash care said we haven't seen but I think progress we have to, we have to that take, you would expect we at have, this point. But we have to have perspective on that as well, and that we were managing a, a once in 100 year pandemic, uh, where the focus of government was to protect our health system uh, and to invest in the acute aspects of it. And But slash care is proceeding, uh, and, and the slash care implementation plan outlines that. And I think that'll be the focus of government now uh, as we as we continue to manage COVID, will be the implementation of Solange. All right, uh, Kevin, it'll be the focus of government and it'll be the focus of the Minister uh, for Health. Do you think that's still going to be Stephen Donnelly come December? Well, it's interesting that Paul Reid leaves in December and a big question, of course, Paul Reid, a lot of controversy over the fact that he's paid, uh, or at least package is worth more than 400,000 compared to Tony O'Brien, who was there before uh, and, and was on about 250 or somewhere thereabouts. So it already was jumped. You wonder the massive pay rise that was given to um, Robert Watt to move over to be Secretary General of the Department of Health. Uh, we still have to see the roles advertised for the CMO and Deputy CMO. And so the only person who seems to want to stay in the health job is Stephen Donnelly, who said at the weekend that he would like to remain in December's reshuffle. I think that's questionable, if I'm honest. If you look at the politics of it, uh, depending on who the leader of Fianna Fáil is at that stage, um, I, I'm not sure too many of Stephen's colleagues feel they might owe him the job that Micheál Martin gave to him. It could be Jack Chambers. Jack, any interest? Stephen Donnelly has uh, full, full support, <laughs> uh, is, is an excellent, is an excellent uh, colleague and uh, is really focused. He's worked I didn't with, expect you to say anything he, else. He, he, has worked, he, has, he has worked extremely well uh, with Paul All Reid right. and others in trying to protect our country during COVID and deserves credit in what he's trying to do around Slauncha Care as well. OK, look, let's leave it there. Uh, my guests are staying with me. Next, the pain at the petrol pumps. Stay with us. You're very welcome back. Now, Government Chief Whip Jack Chambers, Media House Group Head of News Kevin Doyle are still here and I'm also joined now by Sunday Independent Motoring Editor 
the new Sunday Independent Muttering Editor, I should add, uh, Jer Herbert. Uh, you're very welcome to the programme. Uh, Jer, look at prices at the pump. It's such a visual thing. I think we all pass a filling station once, twice, three times a day. We're all in and out of them, filling up the car. Uh, so we really feel the price at the pumps and they're going up again. Yeah, and I think the big issue at the moment is the average tank is about 50 litres. So once we got to the two litre or the two euro per litre, we're now looking at 100 euros basically to fill a car. And I think once people start to do that, that is a huge amount of money to be spending. As some people are spending that on a weekly basis. Unfortunately, there's no let up in sight at the moment. There is constrained um, refinery capacity at the moment and we're trading um, oil in the dollar, you know, in dollars at the moment. And the dollar obviously is very strong. So those two things are conspiring and there's, there's no let up at the moment, unfortunately. For you said two euro, but I mean, most of us have seen well above two yeah. euro in the last uh, week or so. Yeah. And depending where you are around the country, it's varying considerably, but definitely there's nowhere below two euros. In fact, I think two, five, two, six is about the best you're going to get anywhere at the moment. So we're now above the 100 euros to fill your car. And yet, Kevin, crude oil prices are coming down. So why are we not seeing this reflected at the pumps immediately? Yeah, there has been a little bit of a dip in the last few days. But even in the UK, they're reporting that petrol prices over the weekend went up again. So it it doesn't match up in in what you would assume is basic maths. But what the experts tell us is that, well, it doesn't just translate automatically because the oil is sitting in the petrol station in your local village already. So the fact that somewhere... Uh, on, on some map somewhere prices have changed doesn't necessarily change that it has to filter through but things are so uncertain at the moment from the various between from the war to supply chains to all the rest of it that today's dip might be next week's rise so actually we may never actually see that five cent or six cent come back down again it just seems to be in an upward trajectory and it can't be stopped at the minute. Uh, would you agree that even though we are seeing this sort of you know slight dip um, with crude oil prices, we might never see that at the pump? No, we won't. I don't think... Because I can I'm... imagine how frustrating people are thinking, hold on, when it goes this way, we immediately see it reflected in the pump. But if it does this at all, we're not seeing it immediately reflected. Now, I know it's not that simple... But I mean, that's that's what people are going to be seeing and thinking at home this evening. Yeah, the problem is it's a global market and it's supply and demand globally. And the thing about it is, in, in the states, even though the prices have gone up, I think it's it's five um, it's it's five dollars a gallon now, and it was three dollars. The, uh, the the uh, sort of uh, the holiday season is about to kick off. That always puts huge demands on oil, and that always sends prices rising. So that's what's been anticipated in the market at the moment, and that's not going to be dampened because of COVID for the last two years. Nothing is going to dampen the summer road trip in the states so no high fuel prices are going to make a difference. Uh, Dennis Norton you're still uh, on the line are you seeing people changing their habits when it comes to um, petrol or diesel usage? I think people in rural areas are changing their habits as best they can the difficulty is for many of them public transport is not an option uh, so they have to rely on their car to to get to and from work, to get to and from school. And I think we need to remember in this country that 37% of our population live in isolated uh, rural communities uh, and rural areas. Uh, so, you know, solutions that are needed in other parts of Europe are very different here in Ireland because of the dispersed rural population that we have. And disproportionately, uh, families in rural Ireland are now spending proportionately far more of their uh, wage packet uh, on uh, fuel and heating uh, than people in urban areas because of the long distances yeah. they need to travel. Um, Jack, uh, Leo Vradker did seem to indicate last week that if fuel prices go up and up and up and up, 
there might have to be some movement uh, pre-budget. Is that the case? Would the government consider that? So the position, just say, I acknowledge that the fuel prices and energy prices more generally are having a big impact on, on many families and households and the broader cost of living challenges, I know, impacting a lot of people. What the government is committed to doing is we're going to have a summer economic statement uh, followed by a process where in October we'll have a budget to really try and cushion the impact of the rising cost of living uh, for many families as we head into the winter. So not as Leo Radker was suggesting last week, that maybe if things get so bad between now and uh, October, the government might intervene. You're saying no it will be October. The position, that is the government position. But tackling the fuel prices then, that will be a priority well, for well, government? Well, we want we to look at this in the round and the broader cost of living uh, challenges. We've got issues obviously around childcare. We've got, uh, you know, increased costs in people around housing as well uh, and energy more generally. We want to make sure that that's targeted uh, and, and that we give uh, as, as broad a package as possible for people across welfare so and taxation. not necessarily those and fuel, it, those prices that the pumps well, that people really we'll, we'll be looking at all issues in the round and we want to try and cushion the impact of this, uh, of the cost of living, which is, re I know, really impacting on many families. And it's important to that in a, in a planned way uh, that maximises the impact on those that are most impacted by the current uh, rising costs. Kevin? One of the biggest problems for the government is that we don't know what's in the budget. Of course, it's all a big secret, um, except the one thing that's already written in ink is that there will be a carbon tax rise in the budget, which will put about two cent on a litre of petrol and two and a half or thereabouts on, on diesel. Um, that's already inked and agreed in the programme for government and set out for the years ahead. So part of it, you can imagine the reaction if the government actually push up the price of petrol. I, I know they brought it down some excise, with excise already, but there is a problem there for the government in how they overcome that particular problem because they can't undo the carbon tax. Um, that could collapse so the government if they tried to do that. But that's inked, that petrol prices are to go up in the budget. Now, they can obviously try and counteract that yeah, different ways. Yeah, are you going to try and counteract that? Because the, the, Kevin has a point. Well, the carbon the government pushing the fuel was, prices up it, further it will it just drive people insane. The impact was more than neutralised this year. If you take the measures that we introduced, we've over €2 billion euro worth of measures uh, which we introduced uh, through the year uh, and that mitigated the, the impact of the carbon tax. And also the, that tax is being ring-fenced ring to actually try and transition our economy so okay. that we, we make uh, our economy more sustainable and also that... We, it's, it's also targeted welfare supports for those that are most impacted uh, by the increases in, in fuel costs. Okay, so and the actually, that's been. It might have to mitigate again against that carbon well, tax. We, we, uh, but, but that's the whole principle of climate justice is that you mitigate the impact of carbon tax on those that have least. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do if you take the ESRI and what they have reflected in their analysis of, of the ring fenced funding uh, by government. It is targeted at those uh, that most need the government support. And that's what we've sought to do this year. And that's what we'll seek right. to do again in the budget uh, come October. Uh, and Jer, I'm just wondering, we were talking about you know, driving habits there, are they changing? Has there been a real considerable shift to people uh, moving towards electric vehicles driven by the cost of fuel? Or is an electric vehicle now something that only the rich can afford? Unfortunately, you know, we're still not really seeing the impact of the fuel because there's been such a delay with new cars and such a delay with electric cars at the moment. Most people are waiting up to eight or nine months for an electric car. So if you think about it, it was last October when fuel prices really started to impact. People who made the decision then to go electric may have, you know, made the decision in January. They could still be waiting for their electric car. Their delays are that bad. We do see an increase in electric cars. We could see an awful lot more sales if we had more of them. We would see more sales if we had secondhand electric cars. Huge interest in going electric, but just 
just not an awful lot of options for people. The new ones are quite expensive. They're not when you consider running costs, but people just see the price, the initial, the initial price. Outlay yeah, it is expensive. There's no doubt about it. And as I said, the cars aren't there and the secondhand market is not there. So that is a big issue. As I said, there's a huge desire to go electric. And people, you know, who are paying 100 euros a week know that they could be putting that towards an electric car, even an expensive one. They're just that those options are just not there at the moment for a lot of people. Yeah, and we saw um, the EU a couple of weeks ago, uh, Minister, um, agreeing to ban all petrol and diesel cars from 2035. Um, the programme of government at one stage said that uh, the government was going to introduce that here by 2030. Is that still the case? Well, Minister Ryan will set out the objectives around electric vehicles. Obviously, a lot of what uh, a lot of what will come to electric vehicles is around supply. Uh, and as was referenced there, there is a, an impact on supply in the short term and affordability uh, for some families. Um, so that but, 2030 but, date might but, actually shift? Well, no, what what seem to be what, indicating? No, what I, what I would say is that we're ambitious to, to meet our climate targets. We have to transition uh, a lot of the fleet around petrol and, di and diesel vehicles, and we're providing a huge amount of grant support for that. I expect electric vehicles and their prices, actually, if you look at the trajectory and the price trajectory okay. of electric vehicles, I expect them to drop uh, in the latter part of this decade as production increases significantly. Jerry, we've about 20 seconds. We can't actually legally ban electric, uh, ban petrol and diesel cars at the moment. So I would imagine if the <coughs> EU are moving for 2035, we won't be able to do anything until 2035. I would imagine that would be an EU-wide ban. I can't see Ireland being allowed to do it before that. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. That's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast and you can also find us now on Instagram. Uh, my thanks to all of my guests who joined me this evening, uh, but from the late team here, it's good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.